0: Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel and on this episode, Seattle voters could soon say enough is enough when it comes to the homeless crisis as a controversial charter amendment is expected to be on the ballot this fall. And that amendment has the potential to shake up the mayor's race now with a total of 16 candidates. Plus the state moves to legalize some hard drugs, details of that on the way, but first With the country reeling from two mass shootings in two weeks, President Biden is making a renewed push for gun control. But that is one of the most difficult issues to legislate. So can anything get done? I'm joined now by Republican strategist Randy Peppel and Democratic strategist Kathy Allen.
1: Well, it's just plain tough to do in so many of these cases both Democrats and Republicans have indeed members whose seats would be lost if they voted one way or the other. If there were Democratic districts and you had folks that were voting for, uh, for gun control, their seats would be in jeopardy. And the fact is, is that this is a, this is one of the few times, I hate to say it, that we see coordination And people stepping over the sides of Democrat and Republic. And what is indeed the actual measure? Why it's not taking a vote on gun control, because there's not enough on either side. When put together, it's gonna give you a majority. And frankly, it's also one of those things that in some cases is a waste of time because other things you don't want to happen either are gaining speed. So you throw in guns and that becomes a great delayer.
2: The gun control debate in in this country is one that is a bipartisan one. There are Republicans and and Democrats who disagree on on any additional gun control measures beyond those that are already established. And that's why legislation like this is so hard uh, to make. Additionally, it happens often because of tragedies like what we just saw in the last two weeks, uh, in Atlanta and in, in Colorado that this bubbles to the surface and then you have people trying to utilize it, not for gun control purposes, but for political purposes. And that makes it then even harder, uh, to pass legislation because folks get their guard up every time one of these tragedies happens and someone tries to advance an agenda, based on that tragedy
0: but isn't that how democracy tends to work regardless of issue something happens and then you have the democratic
2: institutions respond to it the reality is is looking at these two circumstances all the gun control in the world doesn't stop a crazy person from doing crazy things and that appears to be the circumstances in both of these cases And so those on the left that will be pushing for gun control versus those in the middle or on the right who are pushing for the Second Amendment, look at that and go, how would an additional law have stopped what just occurred? And to your question, Jeff, about, well, isn't that what democracy is about? Is they're supposed to respond to occurrences? I guess I'd argue democracy is supposed to actually look down the road and leaders are supposed to be trying to determine how to address problems before they become tragedies. And just going from tragedy to tragedy, as we have on the the gun issue uh, over the last few decades, shows a real lack of leadership in leaders who can gather consensus around smart gun issues, but also smart criminal justice issues, and combine those into a package that would be worthwhile. Unfortunately, that's not what you see after you have tragedies like this, when you have lawmaking built on tragedies. So why has the issue of
0: guns or gun control become the most dogmatic of all issues, regardless of what side you're on? I mean, this each side is so entrenched in their position that it doesn't look like there's any room for compromise at all.
1: There is issue exhaustion here. And I must say that, if anything, I, am, I think I'm heartened by the fact that there has been change and these unfortunate disasters did come along at a time when the, I know that the mental health legislation, not only the uh, ability to I would say intercept guns, or if a family member says this kid shouldn't have guns, that legislation in in several states has has moved to a a great. I would say that it's passed both houses, and so from this, the it it, it comes in the form of funding mental health kinds of issues that has proceeded to the point that we're going to see, I think, more of that passed this year, Uh, and that is the smart way of handling gun control, I think, in some of these areas where you're looking at decades-old inability for a bipartisan effort to be able to get it past the ghost eye.
2: And to the question on why guns are such a polarizing issue, I, I would go back to my first point, which is, it's because it is a bipartisan issue. Guns and gun control are one of those issues that, that people will cross party lines based on their personal experience. And those personal experiences are often quite deep. I mean, uh, you'll have rural Democrats who will argue against gun control based on their their own views about mm-hmm. hunting and going hunting with their father and their grandfather. Uh, you know, those types of deep emotional connections, and then you'll have Uh, uh, you know, gun victims on the other side who have a very and much more compelling story about personal impact. And that will move their supporters, but it won't bridge that gap uh, that is not a partisan one, but it's just overshared experience.
0: But we've seen some shift towards, uh, uh, for want of, of a better description, towards the right over the last 20 years on this issue. I mean, you had the NRA back in the 90s. They were for the assault weapons ban. Not so much anymore. I mean, why? Why is why did that change? Why did the gun lobby change its position on that?
2: I can't speak for the gun lobby on on whether they've changed their position or not. Uh, as I said, the NRA is locked in a financial struggle right now for survival, uh, and that that shows that it's really not the NRA uh, that is the issue here. That people, it turns out, in Congress actually do have deeply held beliefs about the gun issue, that are not uh, dependent on whether the NRA is breathing down their neck or not. And uh, I would just argue that it is a polarizing issue because it has been used as a partisan hammer on both sides against candidates who represent swing districts. It's one of the reasons we have fewer swing districts today, is that you have these outside uh, entities, whether it's the NRA or or the gun control lobby, the Bloomberg folks, um, they impact those close races. And this is one of those issues that cost people their seat. And that's why it is so intractable.
1: Every time that I hear it come up, I sit there and think, now, why would any of these guys on our side think that this is going to get passed this year? And I started going down to count the last vote that was taken on anything to do with gun control. And those same Dems and Republicans who are against it are all still there. There's only been four different um changes, I think, in the positioning. Whatever it is, I'm not sure why other than to play to the headlines as to why we would be bringing it up again. It's true. If we had all of the, the power and if we wanted to do what we thought was right, this is something we do believe we need to have less guns. However. Taking a look at the strategy and the reality of it, I can't count where there's a majority, even in our very democratic House and Senate.
0: There's a difference between sport hunting. You know, I, I went duck hunting with my dad many times as a kid, was familiar with the use of shotguns, went to, you know, gun safety school and all of that stuff. And and then there's the issue of the handguns and then the automatic weaponry that we see, whether it was Uh, what was used in the recent shootings or the issues with bump stocks that we saw in the Las Vegas shooting a couple of years ago. Um, One of the things that, that has stuck in my head over the years is a statement from my dad when I was debating this with him. His statement was, the only purpose a handgun has is to kill another human being. And I think that's where uh, the argument tends to get off the rails. People say they want it for defense. People say they want it for hunting. But there's a difference in in, in the type of weaponry that's used. Am I am I making any sense here?
2: I think you are. I, you know, I I am, am not a hunter myself. Um, but I would argue that a handgun is a primary tool of self defense for people who who want one. Um, and it's not because they want to kill anybody. It's just they don't themselves want to be killed. Um, so I would, I would respectfully uh, add an amendment to your, to your father's statement regarding handguns. Um, the reality is, is for folks who are strong Second Amendment supporters, they would flip the question and say, why should the government decide what type of gun I may or may not have? for whatever purpose I may or may not use it for, forever whatever legal purpose I may or may not use it for. You know, they, they would ask, the Constitution says we have this right, why does the government have the right to abridge it just because some crazy person used that type of gun to commit an unspeakable tragedy?
1: The whole thing just sounds like it's been rerun too many times. And I have a, a, a tad amount of sympathy for all these people who keep adding up as part of those who have been robbed of a loved one. And when you hear that, you know, we have a United States senator who just bought an AK, I think it was 15 that or 27. Or fifteen. Yeah, that he had just purchased it. And I'm just in case anybody were to break in his house. And I'm like, no, that's a good image for you. Yeah, let's go buy us, you know, an assault weapon. Um, It just seemed to be the wrong message to the wrong people. And so, in all of it, I think that I like, I'm going to say this is also a very. I would say gender-related issue, though we have strong women advocates for uh, no gun control, the fact is, is that the preponderance of women are the ones who lead this argument nationwide, as do the young people, by the way. Uh, I'm very surprised at the number of people under the age of 35 that are so adamant. Uh, in all of this, I don't have an answer any better than those that have been just
3: talk.
0: Randy, you mentioned the idea of regulation, and the words well-regulated are in the first sentence of of the Second Amendment with regards to a well-regulated militia. But nothing in the United States, nothing in this country is an absolute right. People always argue you have freedom of speech, but even that has its limits. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. So why is the issue of regulation of guns so offensive
2: to some people? I would suggest that there are lots of regulations on guns. Right now. And those don't stop the tragedies that took place in Colorado and Atlanta. And and again, this is, I, I'm interpreting the argument uh, of some of my uh, Second Amendment supporter friends. Uh, and, and, and they would go, there are all kinds of regulations on guns. The, the, the government regulates their sale. Uh, you know, the government from time to time mandates what type of clips or magazines or uh, ammunition you can put on them. Uh, At times, they uh, uh, regulate when you can carry or not carry your weapon and how it must be displayed. So there are lots of regulations uh, that impact the the Second Amendment right to uh, bear arms. It's just none of those regulations and not a single one of those laws would have stopped what happened in Colorado and Atlanta over the last few weeks, those tragedies. And that is the frustration I think that you hear from Second Amendment supporters is why do we always come back to you want to come after my right after a tragedy like this? Why don't you solve the mental health crisis that you've got going on that that would cause individuals to act out in such tragic ways? And those are the questions that they would ask, and and elected officials. Who don't have answers for those questions, won't be passing any legislation to change it either.
1: I'm, I'm just going to hope for the that mental health legislation to pass. It's there's a uh, three different issues before our uh, legislature, and all three have passed through the first uh, house and I think second committees in the second. So I I think that there's good news for the the uh, NAMI as well as the mental health advocates throughout Washington State, I think we're going to actually come up with some pretty respectful stuff.
2: The ability to uh, commit people who are at risk to themselves and to have family members have that ability is one that has been eroded over time. And that is, I think, unfortunate because there are people who, unfortunately, due to their their mental uh, illness, do not make the right decisions for themselves and have to have somebody else do it. And, and, In our state, unfortunately, we have a mental health crisis, in part thanks to Governor Inslee and his bad management of Western States Hospital, which lost over $100 million in federal money because of its lack of certification. Um, We have not seriously addressed that in our state, Uh, and Democrat majorities have looked the other way.
0: On the issue of mental health, I mean, how much can be done to prevent tragedies like this on that side? Because Just wanting a gun, just committing a gun crime is not in and of itself a mental health issue. I mean, a lot of these, and and I can't speak for every single one of these mass shootings, but in a lot of these cases, the perpetrators were otherwise mentally healthy until this happened.
1: True. Tell you the truth. Each case, as any mental health advocate will tell you, you know, every One of these cases is different, and there isn't any kind of template for being able to kind of say that if you just had gotten the kind of people who had this kind of situation, that, you know, you could have stopped this stuff. So
0: bottom line, do you think that there's any legislation, whether it be on the issue of gun control or on the other side, whether it's dealing with mental health, are we going to see anything like that, whether on the national level or or the state level here in the next few months and years?
1: I'm sure of it. I mean, it's already passing both the of the uh, House and Senate in terms of the key committees, and nationally, I think that the president's pretty, pretty sold on it as one of the early priorities. I have to say, I'm not sure what they all will do, but I don't see the gun legislation bans. It's not part of that cancer of uh cancel culture. I think that what's happened is that what we'll do is we'll try to deal with the positive side of can we do something to make these people's lives better and keep us safe in the meantime.
2: Randy, you get the final say. I definitely think that you'll continue to see advances on mental health legislation passing uh, at state legislative levels. I'm not sure at the federal level uh, what type of legislation they would undertake. Uh, On federal gun uh, legislation, I think in a 50-50 Senate, I I don't think anything will pass out of there. Uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia uh, is a strong Second Amendment supporter. I just don't see that the Democrats are going to make him uh, vote on something that would be that uh, harmful to his political prospects.
0: That's Republican strategist Randy Peppel and Democratic strategist Kathy Allen. Turning to the issue of drugs, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of action following the Blake decision from the Washington State Supreme Court. And if you're not familiar with that, that is the decision that invalidated or declared unconstitutional Washington's ban on possession of a controlled substance. Basically, it came down to the word knowingly, because knowingly was not in the statute. People who were unwitting drug carriers, according to the court, could be prosecuted for crimes they had no part in, or at least had no knowledge of. Joining me now is Comos Matt Markovich, and you and I have both been covering this for some time, and, and now the legislature is working on what they call a fix, but there are Probably half a dozen bills floating through the committees right now.
3: That's right. And, and and what's real important is whose bill is being sponsored by who, a Democrat or Republican. Now, there are two, two other bills that you're, we're talking about in terms of inserting the word knowingly, which, which you talked about, which is the one word that would essentially just reinstitute what's existing and has existed for decades. All the current drug possession laws would be just as they were before if the legislature just put that one word in and passed the bill and the governor would sign it. But there doesn't seem to be any political will to do just that one fix. They want to do other things as well, take advantage of this opportunity. So you have two bills uh, which are basically putting in the word knowingly. Senator uh, Mullet and Senator Hobbs have a co-sponsored a bill. But also uh, Representative Mangred, excuse me, State Senator Monger Dingra from uh, Redmond, uh, a Democrat is floating the most likely possible uh, bill that would be passed because the Democrats control both sides of the legislature, and obviously the governorship in the state of Washington. And her bill would basically put that word knowingly in it, but more importantly, it would allow personal amounts of a controlled substance. Uh, you know, small amounts of all these illegal drugs that have been drug illegal for years. And so what are we
0: talking about when you say small amounts? Are we talking an, an ounce of math or are we talking
3: just, you know, like a dime bag of pot? What, what's the, the amounts here? We're talking about small amounts and some of the most obvious pills that people talk about are pain pills, oxycodone, and that's 40 pills. That would be a limit. There'll be one limit, uh, one gram of heroin, one gram of five uh, MDMH, uh, two grams of cocaine, two grams of methamphetamine, 40 units of LSD or 12 grams of basically magic mushrooms. Now, in reality, these are fairly small amounts that uh, uh, drug users talk about. And, you know, like you said, a weekend bag, this is kind of like maybe a weekend's worth or extended a weekend's worth. Um, And when I interviewed... uh, senator dingra about those limits she said she wanted to have the reality of the ground what prosecutors are really charging for well let's just take an example of one gram of heroin well prosecutors at least on the west side of the cascades are not even charging for one gram in fact uh King County prosecutor Dan Satterberg put out the memo a couple of years ago, don't even send me a case with if it's less than three grams of heroin. And the, the cops on the street basically have been telling me the real limit is six to eight grams of heroin before they may arrest somebody uh, prior to this law being ruled unconstitutional. Prior to that, um, you know, that's been the limit, uh, six to eight grams on the street, at least in King County. So what more would this bill do? Because there, you have a lot of
0: Republicans that are pushing just we'll deal with these other issues later, but put that word knowingly back into the statute, write that one word bill, but Democrats don't seem to want to do that. What else are they trying to do with this bill put forward by Senator D'ingra?
3: Well, they want to take advantage of this opportunity that the Supreme court surprisingly gave to them. And that is change drug reform uh, laws in the state. You know, don't penalize the user, Go after the dealer for sure, but let's see if we can create a situation where people get diversion rather than jail. Uh, if uh, and, and Mangrindo's bill provides that, if someone is caught with more than these amounts, they're not taken to jail. The officer, the arresting officer, can send that person into a drug diversion program like Lead, which is uh, popular in King County, uh, law enforcement-assisted drug diversion program where officers send you to a clinic and make sure that you stay there. You're not even going to court. You're not even going to jail and have those programs available for people who are arrested for simple possession. But there's those, all those programs cost a lot of money. A lot of them aren't set up. In smaller counties, the big counties like Pierce and Snohomish and King have these kind of drug diversion programs that an officer can send somebody to. But the smaller counties do not. And we're talking on a statewide level for all these uh, the, for these bills we're talking about. So that's going to be
0: expensive to set up these programs in those smaller counties. How does she pay for this?
3: Well, that's <laughs> there is no I don't have an answer for that. And she doesn't really have an answer for that because on the back end of her bill, she has money to help pay for all the uh, fixing of all the sentencing uh, that the unconstitutional, uh, the the ruling that the state Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional, which meant that basically 126,000 people with simple possession on their sentencing records have to be resentenced. That's 126,000 people, 7,000 people that uh, are currently in the prison system in the state of Washington have that simple possession on their, sentencing and their sentencing score. So all those cases have to be resentenced. That costs a lot of money. It's a burden to the counties. So uh, the Dingra bill kind of does it all. It provides for that. It provides a limit for small amounts of uh, illegal drug use and also puts the word knowingly back into the bill. So it's a big package, but it seems to be the one, uh, unless the Republicans can add some amendments and kill it, uh, so many they'll it'll kill it because the time is running out the legislature. It seems to be the one bill that could go through, but yet it's not even had its first hearing.
0: Well, and, and you mentioned the time is running out. There's less than a month remaining in the legislative session and deadlines to pass bills out of committee and onto the floor and onto the opposite house have all passed. So in order for something like this to pass, uh, to become law this late in the session, you're going to need broad bipartisan support, aren't
3: you? Yep. Yeah absolutely you're going to have to have it in the way that it's worked uh, this legislative session you can totally get a bill bogged down in the house because uh the any party or any person can put an unlimited amount of amendments on a bill and essentially stall it and the committee chair will say i don't even have time to deal with all these amendments we're not going to hear it this year in the senate that you don't have that in the house you do and that's where this bill is going to have to go it hasn't even cleared the senate yet but it has to go to the house And it can just basically get killed in the House. But still, you have the Democrats in charge.
0: Well, and this may end up leading to the first. Special legislative session that doesn't have to do with a budget if things don't get worked out in the next four weeks. But the other thing we wanted to talk with you about is the mayor's race in the city of Seattle. We have, I think right now, a total of 16 candidates that have declared and have filed. Uh, And we're seeing some new names and some familiar names as well. Jesson Farrell, who ran four years ago, former state lawmaker. Uh, who stepped down from her post to run for Seattle mayor in uh, 2017, uh, although didn't make it past the primary. She's uh, probably the biggest name to jump in over the last uh, week or so.
3: Yes, she has. Very experienced lawmaker, knows her ins and outs of down in Olympia, but does she know the in and out of running a city like Seattle? She tried before, did not make it through uh, the primary uh, when Jenny Durkin was eventually elected mayor. Uh, So she has some name recognition, but I don't think she has... Quite the name recognition that other people have that are currently running for mayor. You have uh, Lorena Gonzalez, who's been on the council for quite a while, and you have Bruce Harrell, who has been on the council, was an interim mayor uh, for a brief time following uh, the departure of Ed Murray. Uh, He has jumped into the race. Uh, So you have some big, bigger names that I would say at right at this moment at the top of the ticket in terms of the most likely people to make it through the primary. Uh, I don't know if I'd put Justin Farrell in that mix. I would I would put uh, Bruce Harrell and Lorena Gonzalez, the two council members who do have name recognition in the city and have some sort of following. Uh, Bruce Harrell, more of a moderate law and justice candidate, um, it has it, it rides. Is, if anybody, he's right in the middle. Uh, you have uh, Colleen Echohawk by me to the left of her uh, runs the Chief Seattle Club. Not so much name recognition, but boy, has she got a lot of uh, dollars her way. She's leading the pack right now in terms of vouch- democracy vouchers. Uh, as of uh, March 25th, the latest report has her at $203,725 in democracy vouchers. That's basically free money. People in Seattle pledging uh, uh, to use taxpayer money. They have the right to do that and pledge it to a candidate, and they can use it for their campaign. So she clearly at this moment is leading the pack doubling more than doubling anybody else that is running for mayor lorena gonzalez just uh, over a ninety nine thousand dollars in democracy voucher again colleen echohot at two hundred three thousand and then you have andrew grant an outsider uh, Andrew grant houston who is uh basically worked in the city uh, the, the the bureaucratic end of the city government um not as elected official He's coming in third at eighty five thousand dollars in democracy vouchers. So um, that's where you have that.
0: And and that's not just and those are just the democracy vouchers. That doesn't mean private donations as well. And and if you look at some of those, Colleen Echohawk also pretty much rolling in the dough.
3: Yes, um, she's got one hundred four thousand dollars to this date. Again, you have Gonzalez is second, and Houston is third. So those two, and those were the first three. Actually, uh, Houston was the first one to actually come out and announce. So those people are the first out of the blocks. It's real important to be out of the blocks early because then you can, once you file your paperwork, people in Seattle can pledge their democracy vouchers to you. So the earlier you you announce, the more money you can get at least through public funding through the democracy voucher program. Um, So those are the top three, but then you don't have, um, we haven't heard from uh, Bruce Harrell getting all his paperwork in and get him in. Obviously Justin Farrell who just announced uh, doesn't have all her paperwork in. Um, but um, I, I, they will have it in there. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. <laughs> uh,
0: and then, of course, official filing week is still a ways away. That's in May. So that's when you know, if if these people are you know dancing with the idea of running for mayor, then maybe realize they can't raise the money, then they don't file. So we may see some people drop out between now and then. We also may see people jump in between now and then. Uh, but what do you think this race is going to be about? What issue do you think? is going to define this campaign, regardless of who's in it.
3: I think it's defund police, homelessness, and reviving downtown Seattle and reviving, bring Seattle back to normal. I think that's it. I, I, I think you can make the whole the whole race on those three to- big topics there. And I think the litmus, t- and we're going to have a litmus test coming up here, uh, Jeff. Uh, it's not going to be, a, it's going to be announced very soon. Uh, this week that uh, Tim Burgess is going to announce a charter amendment, former mayor and former council member Tim Burgess going to announce a charter amendment. Uh, The wording is still being worked on as we speak, but the guts of it is that uh, in Seattle, if you're homeless and you are offered services and housing, temporary housing repeatedly, and you refuse then you have the city has the right to remove that person from that camp permanently. That's the big word there, permanently. Does that mean move them out of the city? Does it move them down the street? They can't ever come back to that one area? It's almost like we don't know the language of all that. The service providers um, who have been providing for the homeless are very much aware of this charter amendment coming up. Uh, I'm being told that there's negotiations going on between the service providers. And the backers of the Tim Burgess Charter Amendment, and he's got some good financial backing to get it in the into the election cycle for November, um, and that will be. I think judged as the litmus test for a lot of these candidates, will you support this charter amendment, which basically says what everybody, a lot of people think Uh, we offer services, we're a a good city, we've been bending over backwards for people, but if people continue to refuse it, and want to live on the street, there has to be a, a line in the sand. And that's what this charter amendment is.
0: The fact that voters will be deciding on this potential charter amendment at the same time they're voting on the office of mayor, that could really shake up the race. And that gives an opportunity for some candidates to really jump ahead of the pack, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, and I can't estimate how important this is because there's a difference between an ordinance that the city council will pass and the mayor signs that can be changed by another council. Or another mayor. This is part of the city charter. It's like the framework for the city. You're inserting something that says this, this is a vote of the people have said, you got to do this city council. You can't change that. You have to follow this rule. So that's why it's kind of going to be so important going forward. It's going to be the, I think maybe the biggest talking point in these elections is this charter amendment and where people fall on it.
0: All right, Matt Markovich, it's just now getting started. It's going to be a very interesting 2021. Thank you so much for your time, as always. You're welcome. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger, and our hourly news updates. All are available at comonews.com podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.